Welcome to Mission Control, Peralta Design's podcast on all things branding and digital marketing. Since 2008, Peralta Design has launched hundreds of brands with award-winning identities and websites. Join our hosts Ramon and Jorge as they use decades of combined experience to tackle topics with past clients, industry partners, and the rest of the PD crew. At Peralta Design, we launch brands. But for now, let's launch right into this episode of Mission Control. Hey everybody, welcome to Mission Control, Peralta Design's official podcast for everything branding, marketing, and entrepreneurship, where we respect the grind and reclaim the American dream. I am your host, Ramon Peralta from Peralta Design, and we launch brands. I'm very excited to have a special guest today, someone that uh, I consider a big brother in some ways, uh, even though I'm taller. Uh, <laughs> and uh, a well, mentor. <laughs> um, you didn't know what kind of show this was going to be, right? Uh, a, a mentor, uh, someone that I've known for many years, and he's given me a lot of solid advice, and he helps a lot of other businesses as well. Please join me in welcoming uh, Mr. Tony Rodriguez. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ramon, for that great introduction. I do appreciate that. You know, <laughs> I may not be I, I may not be the giant that you are, but <laughs> I try to compete. <laughs> you know how they say we, we, we stand among the, uh, on the shoulders of giants? Right. You know, sometimes they're not giants, but I'm definitely on your shoulders because you've helped me uh, tremendously uh, over the years. Well, I appreciate I appreciate that very much. I yeah, appreciate I'm I'm so thrilled to have you here, Tony. Just so we can, uh, you know, our audience are business owners and and entrepreneurs, and and I think uh, you know you're certainly running a company that that uh, that's helping those type of organizations as well as large corporations. I can't wait to hear all about it. But we all, uh, you know, I like to say the the you know the path to success is not a straight line. So I I love hearing everyone's backstory. So tell us a little bit about Tony. You know, take us back to the disco days, wherever you want to go back. <laughs> no, I don't want to take you to my wild disco days. <laughs> that might be a good show. But that was really a lot of fun. I did have a lot of fun in those days, you know, but you know, obviously, you know, I, I was born in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was born in a farm in a coffee farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm one of uh, 12 kids. We migrated to the U.S., to the mainland, because Puerto Rico obviously is the U.S., but we migrated to the mainland in 1963, although my dad was traveling back and forth since 1948 for work. So we moved in here, we moved to Waterbury, Connecticut in 1963. Uh, I went to uh, a technical school in in, uh, in Waterbury, actually Watertown, was was called Caner Technical School for a year. I I, I said, you know, I, I really didn't like what the courses that were there. Uh, uh, I didn't want to be an auto mechanic or a cook or anything like that. Uh, I tried drafting for uh, at a selection for my workshop, and after a year, I went to uh, a public. Uh, high school. And from there, I graduated, went to a community college for two years. Then I went on to uh, the University of New Hampshire, where I finished uh, my college career with uh, a degree in political science, because politics was in my blood. 
and then uh, from there, uh, also a minor in business. So that takes you back to when I was 11 years old, and of course now as uh, the president of um, uh, Daniel Penn Associates. And you know how I got started in the in the consulting business perhaps is not as could, different than for most people. Um, you know, when I graduated out of uh, college, I was working for, in Connecticut, what it was called then, uh, a health and mental health uh, uh, organization. But during my, my college career, I was working in a printing shop. And that is the company that really printed all the Sunday supplements mm -hmm. that you see inserted in your newspaper. Mm -hmm. And I, I would work the second shift. And, uh, and uh, obviously, that's the way that I pay my way through college because my folks were not folks of means that they will be able to, you know, pay your college uh, tuition. You have to earn it. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And during that time, I met uh, an individual of a company that was doing a consulting assignment for the printing plant that I was working uh, for. And we developed a friendly relationship. And uh, so after he concluded that project, I don't know if he would touch base with me, Christmas card, we, we exchange uh, uh, Christmas cards. Then one day out of the blue, when I was working at this health mental health agency, which I was not thrilled with the work I was doing, he said, hey, would you like to come and work for us? I said, what do you mean? And, you know, he had started a, a consulting firm out of Paramus, New Jersey with uh, uh, two other, three other individuals, and they were hiring. There were up to 20 people. The workload was up. And, you know, I'm going back to 19, 1979, mm -hmm. 1970, I'm sorry, 1977. I'm a, you know, 23-year-old uh, year old Turk. I said, why not, right? So I went to Paramus. I interviewed with them. Uh, you know, the, the year prior to that, I had run for political office in Connecticut. I was the first Hispanic to run as a Republican in Waterbury in an Irish district, right? And, and came within 500 votes of winning the election of a 14-year incumbent who was also the brother-in-law of the mayor of the city. And so, uh, you know, so it was a, a big, big victory in reality. And uh, there was there was a Talk fellow- about going the, against all odds there. Against all odds, you know. Uh, <laughs> and then at that time, uh, Malcolm Baldrige, and Malcolm Baldrige was the Commerce Secretary under Ronald Reagan, but he was also uh, in the district that I ran. So when I, when I was running in my district, I went to visit his office uh, and uh, spend you know, some good uh, time with him, uh, sort of letting him know what I wanted to do. And he was a political figure at the time. Uh, so the result of that is that uh, you know, when the consulting opportunity came about and I had other you know, ambitions to run for uh, additional political office. I went to Paramus. I went to for an interview. You know, uh, after a year, after a whole day of an interview, I was offered a job. Uh, I was um, I was making in my job that I had. I was making nine thousand a year. I was going to make twenty five thousand dollars as a starting salary. So, which was significant. That's true. Like yeah. you tripled your salary. Right. So they said, you know, there's two things you need to do. Uh, actually, three things. He says, you need to, um, you know, 
shave your beard, and cut your hair. <laughs> you had the long hair going. Back. I had the I had a longer hair at that time, so I had to do. I had as they say, is that an issue? I said, absolutely not. And then they say, what about your job? I said, well, I'll go tomorrow. This is on a Friday, and I'll give my notice. Uh, unfortunately, as because then uh, they said, can you be in New York City on Sunday night? <laughs> uh, so, you know, all of this happened within three days. I said, absolutely. I did all of that. And uh, so I was a trainee at a consulting, a first consulting assignment at Revlon. Wow. In New York City. Uh, so that's how I got started moving forward in terms of my own uh, uh, company. I met three guys um, that during the time that I was with this company, uh, and we decided that we were really, really good at what we did, right? We were cool, you know, we, <laughs> we <laughs> because, you know, we were doing some things that were pretty innovative, right, in, in nature in terms of, you know, I, I look at, you know, part of the work that we do today in lean manufacturing. And, you know, back then, you know, nobody knew what process mapping was, but we decided, you know, if we map the process, how it comes in, how it goes through other department, we can look at ways which we can improve it. So it was innovation in our mind. So we decided that in 1979, we went on our own, uh, four of us, right? Not even, you know, just thinking that we were really that good, uh, not thinking that we had a downturn, you know, economic, the economic climate at the time. We were also in 1979, we were in, a, in reality, some sort of a recession, right? right. It, right. The economy was not really that great. But so it took us eight months before we got our first project. So back up a little bit because you, so the, you were working at this, uh, the printing place. Right. And you met, you met this gentleman there. Right. You formed that relationship, but that he ended up calling you back when you had you were now at the mental health. Job. Right, I had graduated from college, right. and I was working. I was on my first job. I was like maybe a year out of school. Right, and so the, and this gentleman gave you this. You know, he presented the opportunity to to be in the consulting business, and this is 1977 that you started the job with Revlon. Right. Right. So, in, in, so then with, with two years under your belt, because this is, this is good for like the entrepreneurs that are out there. The, a lot of them are just kind of gun shy. They, they're afraid to take the leap. I took the leap because I got, I got laid off. I got pushed out of the nest. But a lot of entrepreneurs out there, they're not sure whether they should just run into and jump and do their own thing from, from, from the beginning or get experience somewhere and then do their own thing. In hindsight, do you think two years was enough time in the consulting world or were you just crazy and you just said, the hell with it, let's do our own thing? Well, you know, um, I mean, two years in, 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 in our case, there were four of us. So okay. there were some of them more that seasoned. had been, they had you know, more they're more seasoned than, yeah. I, than I was. So they, they, they really had a lot more uh, experience in the consulting business but, you know, I came in as uh, to do the business development for the company. And I was always, you know, I always been, you know, upfront, go-getter. I speak my mind. I, you know, I, I, I do, I know what is, you know, uh, good f from bad. So, you know, so, uh, so the result of that is that sometimes you get an opportunity and, you know, you got to jump on it. Yeah. You may not 
be totally prepared for it. But sometimes, you know, when you jump in the water, you learn how to swim. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So, so that's yeah. what happened. And, you know, uh, did we have difficulties at the beginning? Yes. But, you know, you know, uh, in, in, 19, in 1998, you know, there's this other partner that we had been together for a long time. He was, you know, uh, 15 years uh, older than I was. So he wanted to take retirement. So I bought him out. So, uh, the, so that's how I became a sole owner of uh, Daniel Penn Associates. So, and you've been, I, you know, so you've been with Daniel Penn since 1979? 1979. It's what wow. we, you know, we started in 1979. Wow. Back then, was we were incorporated in the state of Pennsylvania. Got it. it was called Daniel Penn Associates, Inc. When I uh, bought the company, I reincorporated in Connecticut as a Daniel Penn Associates, LLC. Got it. And as a sole owner. Now, where does the pen, is the pen come from Pennsylvania? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, uh, when, you know, uh, uh, we were thinking at the time, we're thinking of a name, we're thinking of Daniel Boone, you know, that, you know, Pennsylvania, pioneer. you know, pioneer kind of thing. <laughs> it's all one of the guys in the, one of the original founders who unfortunately passed away early in life from cancer, his name was Daniel. So, you know, we're trying to assimilate Daniel gotcha. Boone to Daniel Penn. And you know, the Penn name is quite significant in Pennsylvania. It is, yeah. Right. So we said, okay, let's let's go with Daniel Penn. So I like it. I mean, yeah, from a branding standpoint, I thought you guys did a great job. It's it's held the test of time. Mm -hmm. It sounds like something important. Um right. I love the logo. We didn't do it. I can't take credit for it, but you know, you guys, you guys to be you guys were visionaries, you know, to, in the seventies, I mean, you, you guys had established a company and that's still around today. Mm -hmm. Um, and talk a little bit about, I, you know, I want to, there are questions I want to ask about the industry itself, but there was something you mentioned that's important that I think a lot of our listeners care about. And that is you bought out a partner. How did that come about? Did, did, did he have a succession plan or, did you, was it done over time? How, how did that actually happen? It was done, you know, we had, uh, you know, he wanted, he wanted out. He didn't want to travel. Um, and uh, so he wanted out. And so what we did is uh, at the time we had uh, uh, about a $750,000 project that was going to begin with Merck okay. uh, in Pennsylvania. And he was like half hour away from, from that uh, from that project, so we decided that he would take over that project. Mm -hmm. He would, he, you know, would be all his, and I will, you know, in exchange, I will take over Daniel Penn. Uh, and so, you know, there was no net, there was no valuation of the company at the time, because uh, you know, when you're a small consulting company, it's really the owners that you know the principals that really bring the value, right, mm -hmm. uh, to to the to the organization. So that's what we decided to do. And we were both, you know, good friends. Uh, and so we thought that was a fair, a, a fair trade. You, you take that product. I mean, I'm assuming you drafted up some language where. Yeah, we drafted up some language, uh, you know, and uh, I, uh, I, he kept, you know, he kept Daniel Penn Associates Inc. to work that project. I reincorporated as Daniel Penn Associates LLC. Uh, and you know, uh, after that project, he fully retired. That was the, uh, you know, so he was not a competitor. 
mm-hmm. of mine because uh, we agree that you know we couldn't be competitors mm-hmm. and he says no so we agree that there would be no no competition as part of our agreement and uh, we went separate ways and you know we still stay in touch not as frequently as we used to um, but you know uh, that was it I mean and I went on my own and you know, been been doing it since since 19. Actually, uh, uh, we incorporated Daniel Penn Associates in December 28, 1998, and really began fully operational in in 1999. That's amazing. I mean, that's yeah. 40, 40 plus years. Right. It's about 40, yeah, almost 45 years that, and you know, that Daniel Penn Associates has has been in uh, in business as a as an organization. That's awesome. Now, yeah. over the years, have has have has it gone? Like, what's the largest you've been? Largest by meaning, have you have you staffed and then like, you know, oh, yeah. like go of people and then hired and like, what's yeah? That and, I like? mean, in in my case, you know, uh, uh, interesting story for us. We were, you know, we were look working at different verticals. So in in from nineteen two thousand and five six. We were doing a lot of work in the um, in the financial sector, mm-hmm. so you know we we were uh, doing a big a couple of big projects for Vanguard. Uh, we were doing uh, Bank of Boston. You know there was a, a number of financial sectors that we were working in, and so we decided. And at the time, we were doing a lot of work in in really in business process improvement in those sectors, but also in staffing. And so we developed the, the you know, uh, a software package, you know, software as a service for the banking industry. And we went into uh, in 2007. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and what that service did is that it, it would enable a bank to determine how many tellers they needed every day of the week by hour of the day in order to be able to provide good quality service to their customer, but to do that at a very cost-effective basis. And so we decided we focus on one vertical, the financial sector. Then, you know, so by September, early September, uh, end of August of 2008, we had about three and a half million dollars of potential bookings for the financial sector in, in, in terms of this platform for staffing, mm-hmm. then I don't have to tell you what happened in September, 2008, right? The no. bottom fell off the financial yep. sector. Mm-hmm. A lot of the banks that, that we were dealing with went belly up because we were focusing primarily in the mid-sized banks, mm-hmm. uh, banks with 15 to hundred branches. You know, a lot of them just totally went belly up. They got absorbed by larger institutions. Out of that $3.5 million worth of business, we got one project that moved forward, which was 25K, with a recurring uh, revenue of about $5,500 a month. Imagine that. Everything else just disappeared. Um, So, you know, it was quite a, I sold my house in order to maintain the business. Uh, you know, I I maxed my uh, line of credit with the bank uh, in order to try to sustain the business. And at that time, I had eight people working full time for me. And you know, I held with I held them 
for six, six months. And after that, you know, it says, you know, couldn't do it. Um, and so now I have 17 people that work with me, but they're all 1099s. Got it. Right. And so they work on a project basis. Most of them work for me primarily. Uh, they they do some of the things on their own, but that is the, that is the model that I've utilized because it took about, you know, I was probably about a million dollars in debt mm -hmm. uh, by end of 2009. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, thank God I, I was able, you know, when we talk about developing relationships, right, and developing, providing good value to our clients and making sure that, remember, we had, do, we had done a big project also at Mer Merck Operations in Rawway, New Jersey. And at the time, and that was all for their facilities management. And the, the director of and the vice president of maintenance and operation had left, and he had become a director of facilities maintenance at New York Presbyterian and Cornell Hospitals in New York. And he called out of the blue. He says, you know, I need you, right? And as a result of that relationship, you know, we were able to get like a $1.7 million project, mm -hmm. which really enabled us to really work our way out of the financial crisis that we were in. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, whether you're a large business or a small business, it's those relationships and how you cultivate them. But also, if you do work for somebody, that you really always want to make sure that you provide the highest value that you can in your efforts, because I'll remember you. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's. Uh, I remember 2008 very well. I, I was laid off uh, in August of 08. So mm -hmm. uh, I know how hard it was back then. And I can only imagine what you had to go through uh, during that time, uh, mm -hmm. especially with, you know, everybody talks about scaling. That's, that's the exciting part. Everybody wants to know how do you scale, but I think there's value in how do you scale down? Mm -hmm. um, and maintain your brand and maintain your presence and your relationships right. uh, and then come back stronger. And, right. um, and your model, uh, how, did, how, did it, how did it serve you with PPP with the 1099s? Because our model is W-2s is totally different. Right. But right. We, we were, able, you know, I feel like PPP is designed more for the W-2 than for the 1099s. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. The only, the, if you're, the PPP only works to the, only to yourself. So you have to take a look at what your total earnings were right. for that year. Uh, and then, you know, you, you, you divide it by the number of, of, of I, I forget the number, but, you know, um, and then you multiply that number times uh, four, and that's what you get as a result of your PPE. And, and there's a limit mm -hmm. as well. Uh, but, you know, we, it, we got some. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we are very thankful for the you know the the amount that we got uh mm -hmm. and then subsequent to that uh we you know had to uh get a, a loan to keep us you know through the the process but that has also sort of balanced itself out and yep. you know thank god we we have uh not as you know we have nine projects that are on hold as a result of uh COVID. so hopefully they're all telling me that q2 of 2021 this will move forward and, you know, we had to pivot. Yeah. But we've been doing some things virtually. We just finished not too long ago uh, a project for in South Dakota for the Department of Health there. Um, and it was all done virtually. 
Uh, we've done some training that, uh, that are been doing virtually. We're doing some work with uh, a company out of Arizona, W. Al Gore, and we're doing that work also virtually at this point. So, yeah. you know, you, no. have to, you have to pivot. You do. And, and that's, that's, that's something that's super important for people to understand. Mm-hmm. But tell us what you actually do, because, you, you, we, you know, you and I toss around the words lean and mm-hmm. consulting and, and, and processes, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's important, I think, just break it down. If, somebody, if, if you were explaining what you did to somebody that wasn't familiar with your industry, what would you tell them that you do? Well, you know, if you're a business consultant, obviously, you know, you support clients as a business consultants in a, in a, in a, in a number of areas, whether problem solving, mm-hmm. strategy, sometimes you're a consultant, business consultants in marketing, right? Mm-hmm. Social media, there's different, different aspects that you can support a client as a consultant. Right. Ours is really primarily mm-hmm. operational improvement. So we work with clients to take a look at their operation to improve operational efficiencies. And that is, you know, simply is, you know, if if I'm in a manufacturing process, I get so many widgets to produce in any given day. I have all of these pieces of equipment that I need that it goes through. So there's a flow that goes through for that to manufacture that, that widget. And then we take a look and say, what's the most efficient way that we can do that both in terms of the process, in terms of the raw materials that we need, right? Uh, in terms of the quality aspects that, that needs to be provided, in terms of what the employee needs to know, in terms of the process of what he or she needs to do in order to make sure that we are functioning in a pretty consistent operating basis. So that's, that's you know, so we, we, we take a look at, those kinds of operational efficiencies. And it's really in, you know, we can do customer service operation to supply chain. For example, we, we uh, recently did a project for Silgen dispensing system. And that's a supply chain. But it's really a supply chain issue when uh, they got a customer order, right? And then they send it back to the customer for approval. They get it back. And then it goes through the manufacturing process. But, you know, the customer were complaining because it was taking 90 days, 60 to 90 days for the order to, for the client to get the goods to them. Mm-hmm. So we, we came in to do a process map, what we call a value stream map. It's how that work order really flows to the process, how we, you know, communicate to procurement so that we can order raw materials so then we can know what the capacity on the floor is in order to be able to say, when can we put this in the manufacturing process given everything else that we have going? Right. So when we took a look at that, you know, getting the order and the manufacturing process was not the issue, was really the supplier. So the, the supplier was in France and in, in Italy. So it was taking 60 days for them to get parts mm-hmm. from their supplier in order to be able to manufacture the piece. The piece. So then when you take a look at that, you, you have to now start looking at your supply chain resiliency. And you know that it's not very good, right? Because your supplier is not being responsive enough. So what are the options that you have? Well, you know, you, you, one option is you work with your supplier 
to see what you can do for them to respond much more timely. Mm -hmm. Can you help them improve their process? Or, you know, you look for suppliers that are closer to your geographic area so that, you know, that whole logistic transportation, uh, the whole basis is eliminated. So you have to begin to look at, you know, physical location of your suppliers. You know, and that's now after doing the, the, as a result of the pandemic, that's a big issue right. for everybody in terms of, you know, because it's not just the pan, uh, pandemic, but it's really any type of, you know, uh, situation could be a weather type of issue or whatever that really causes, you know, a disruption in your supply chain. And here you are now can't produce for your customer because you're not getting the raw material. So taking a look at physical location of your supplier it's, it's a, you know, it was one of the answers and, or, you know, looking at diverse suppliers and diverse supplies in this case, I don't mean supply diversity, but, you know, taking a look and making sure that you have more than one supplier, you know, delivering on that product so that you can very easily, you know, go pivot to that supplier and get, you know, the materials that you need. Yeah. Now, and some of this can get complicated, right? Right. <laughs> I, absolutely. And well, one of the, before I, before I get to like the challenges of doing things remotely, which I which I, I'm sure have added another layer to what you were doing before the pandemic. Um, you mentioned some of the value of these contracts: seven hundred fifty thousand, you know, one point four million for for a project. What kind of ROI do you provide to these, some of these clients? So give me a success story where you come in, you know, a client, a big company hires you, a corporation hires you. Are you saving them? If they hire you for a million, could you potentially save them a billion? I mean, what, what's realistic of an impact? Uh, you know, normally we tell the client uh, the, and, and, you know, savings or benefit is measured in different ways. Obviously, return on investment is one, right? Uh, customer delivery is another one, right? If I can get it to my customer quicker, so I can respond to my customer, can I increase my market share because I'm being much more responsive? You know, we take a look at quality. If my quality is X and I can move it up here, that means that I have less waste, less rework. That's all, you know, that's all, return on investment. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it, it depends. But generally speaking, we tell clients that for every dollar you're going to invest in us, you're going to get two and a half dollars in return. Mm -hmm. So that's the, you know, that's the, what we've been able, you know, on the aggregate accomplish. In some cases, it's much greater than, than that, you know, because sometimes when you are able to really increase the, the market capacity, for your product. And that can be done because, you know, I can have better delivery. Well, my throughput has increased significantly as a result of improving my process. So my unit cost is less. Now I can be much more competitive in my pricing. So I can increase my market shares. So there's a whole wide range of, of efforts that we take a look and all of those, those metrics are really customized to each individual project, you know, what is, what is it that we're looking at and what would be beneficial to that client overall in terms of seeing the value that they're getting? Right, right. And what, 
what challenges have you had to overcome during this pandemic? I know you're remote, but are you finding that some of your clients, besides the ones that have put put the projects on hold, are there any clients that have that have had to do their own work remotely that have posed a challenge for you? Because now it's not just moving parts under one roof. These are, you know, I'm assuming you got moving parts that are in different locations geographically as well. Right, right. Well, you know, the, the biggest challenge for us, and it, it, there's two challenges. One is the business development challenge, right? Which is quite significant. Uh, and it's quite significant because a lot of the people that you need to talk to or get a hold of are working remotely, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so that's one challenge. In terms of, uh, in terms of working in, in a plant or any kind of an environment where, you know, in many cases the clients say, hey, listen, you know, I don't want to let anybody coming in from the outside right. because I don't want to, I want to make sure that my uh, uh, staff and my base of employees are healthy because if anybody, you know, if it gets impacted by COVID, it can create significant issue for the total operation. And in many cases, you know, that's been the significant issue of why these projects have been put on hold because it requires a lot much more on-site support than external. Uh, and, but, you know, you, again, we pivoted in some of these and we continue to do that where, you know, South Dakota was a project that we were doing. And the challenge, you know, was delayed, delayed. Finally, we said, let's work on this uh, on a, you know, virtual basis. And so, so the challenge to that is really, and we just wrote an article that was published by Industry Week recently. And what does it really take to conduct a virtual Kaizen event, right? A Kaizen event is when you focus on something to change it for the better. And you use that a lot in your operational excellence environment and you know the challenge always is preparation there's not enough preparation so you got to think of all the kinds of things that you need to do beforehand in order to make sure that your virtual effort is successful and you need to be able to communicate that to the client in terms of what they need to do on their end in order to because you know it's not where if you're on site and you're missing something Somebody can get up from the team, they can go get it, right? So mm-hmm. it, it really, the reality is it makes it that much more flexible. But when you're working remotely, you got to have that already on the table uh, to be able to work on it. If not, then, you know, you have to really then, it becomes an assignment for somebody to do, to bring back the next time we meet. Right. And the other, the other challenge is that you never want to be able to really set long, you know, long uh, Zoom calls, uh, Zoom efforts with client because after a while people get burned out. So, you know, the most we do in any kind of these events is two hours at a time. Now, we were doing three, we backed it out. And even with those two, there's 10 minute breaks in between. So is this the Kaizen that you're speaking of? Yeah. Right. Now, where does that word come from? It's like- a Japanese word. It's a part of the lean Lean, you know, terminology is part of the Toyota production system uh, terminology. And Kaizen, it's, it's a, you know, Kai is change and, you know, and size better. So it's change for the better. It's mm-hmm. where you, if you look at my, my, uh, my background, right, in my, that's a value stream map of a, mm-hmm. of a project that we did. So that's the first step that we do in terms of changing for the better is to really understand 
what is the current state of what we do. So that's what is behind in, you know, my, my background is a value stream map of really mapping something of what, what that flow was like. And then you take a look once the current state and the next step is to change it for the better, to create a future state, right? How can we do reduce the number of hands off or the number of quality checks or whatever it is that is really putting a constraint in the process to make sure that it flows a lot smoother. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned lean is six Sigma part of this language. Yep. Yep. So yeah. The, the main model, it's all part of it. Yeah. It's a, it's a combination. So are those certifications that you have uh, or do you have people on your team that have certain. Uh, all, uh, I have people that it's, you know, most of my staff are black belt, what they call black belt certify or lean sensei or master black belt. So, you know, whenever we do this kind of work for a client mm-hmm. in terms of lean, it's always a lean sensei, a black belt or a master black belt that is, uh, comes on board to do that kind of work. And why, why is it coming from all this Japanese stuff? Is it because of the manufacturing, the, the, the assembly line and the process? Because I know, well, like- you know the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the uh, it's all uh, based on the Toyota production system, okay. which in reality, you know, Henry Ford, sort of invented the, you know, in a sense that, that flow, you know, production flow. He was the first founder of that. The Japanese took that and really took it to the next level. And they call it, you know, the Toyota production system. And there's, you know, a number of variations as it relates to the uh, Toyota production system. But, uh, you know, that's the, uh, that's the basis of, of how that happened. Got it. Now, what other, what other management challenges are you seeing, you know, because you're writing articles for Industry Week, you know, you're, uh, you know, you're, you're active in, in networking groups and so forth uh, virtually mm-hmm. these days. But as you look, for, as you look ahead, what, what type of challenges do you think you're going to see more of that you're planning on tackling in 2021? Well, I mean, you know, I think that uh, for us, uh, it, it uh, the the most significant one is to we're looking at developing what we call a hybrid approach for our work so that clients don't feel as uh, you know try to eliminate the fear of having you on on uh, on site so we're developing you know that's that's a challenge right in terms of people letting you come into their workspace mm-hmm. so uh, we're looking at ways to develop a hybrid approach where we can come in part of the time even if it's just for half a day at a time and then come back and, you know, do uh, another portion hybrid. I mean, do another portion on virtual and then go back and do hybrid. So that's, you know, uh, that's a, that's a thing that we're trying to develop to really get individual clients to feel much comfortable uh, with that type of, of an effort. And, you know, and, and the other thing, you know, we, we, we're thankful that we have a vaccine that, Hopefully, eventually, you know, we can get control of this pandemic mm-hmm. uh, and we can all begin to hopefully by mid-year begin hopefully to see us, you know, begin yeah. to work a little I bit I know you're missing normal. it. Yeah, because I, I've seen you in action. You're, 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 you're not shy. You're very, you know, you, mm-hmm. you know how to work a room. You know, I've mm-hmm. seen you, you know, in action. Uh, and so, I, I, like you, I, I, I can't wait until, uh, until we can have these events where we, we can kind of network and mingle and make introductions in person. 
Right. Um, right. You know, so, so, so what happens is in terms of business development for you as well as, as, as for us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we do, uh, as you know, we do quite a bit in terms of social media, mm-hmm. in terms of reaching out, letting people know both on LinkedIn, you know, uh, Twitter. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're pretty active uh, on that. We have a, a person uh, that does that for us uh, on an ongoing basis because, and and the other thing is that, you know, if, as you're developing your brand, uh, you know, you really need to let people know that you're out there and, and uh, that you are, are there for them. Mm-hmm. But one of the ways that you do that also is to be able to really communicate by writing blogs and articles, or if you do a good project that you can write a blog you know, about that project and you communicate and you send that out yeah. so that, you know, and, and you know how Google and those search engines work that the more you put out, the higher your rating, right? So when people are Googling, you know, there, there you come up. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. Now you, you've, you know, we've worked together. We've, we've helped you with the website and you've come right. in and you've worked with our team. Um, the 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 uh, I'm really fascinated with the kaizen and the and and and, and the fact that you're doing them virtual, um, and you mentioned names like like Merck for example that you've worked with and those are big corporations. But do you see Daniel Penn's sweet spot? What would you say it is? Um, is it the midsize, the larger, or or the smaller company that you prefer to help and work with? Well, you know, I basically, I mean, we've helped companies that are $15 million in, in, in sales, right? To companies that are, you know, like a, like a Pfizer, for example, that is, you know, 52 billion in revenues, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in 2019, right? So, so it's, it's a wide range. Uh, We, we certainly look to try to go more for, you know, the, mid-size companies, but we also find that the companies that are willing to really make uh, the, the investment in terms of operational improvement and performance and trying to take their operation to the next level are really, you know, the larger companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, so so you, you, it's a balance. Yeah. Uh, it's a balance as to how, how do you really do that. And I think it all depends on what your offerings are, right? Uh, and so that makes a, a, a significant difference. So, you know, in our case, we find that we have a, a, a much better success uh, in terms of our hit rate with mid to large size organization than to the smaller organization. Now in the smaller organization, and in, in Connecticut, we have a couple of uh, master services agreements. So in specifically in Connecticut, uh, we have a master services agreement with the Connecticut Energy Efficiency Fund, which is a program that supports Connecticut manufacturers with lean manufacturing. And they can get some of this support at no cost to them. So we market that in Connecticut heavily. And a lot of times we're working with smaller to mid-sized company in terms of that program that, you know, uh, they take advantage of that. But when we look at side of Connecticut and, you know, we have clients, uh, you know, we service clients on a national basis, they tend to be the larger organization. So whenever we're marketing anybody that it's really outside of Connecticut, we tend to go for, you know, the larger, uh, the larger companies 
that we know that you know we can reach out to and have they have may have multiple operations not just you know in Connecticut but they may have operations in other parts of the country and internationally mm-hmm. excellent and and um, ideally the the type of clients that would benefit from your services are involve you know companies that are that are utilizing supply chains where they're sourcing materials uh, creating or manufacturing something with those materials and then distributing those materials out to their customers. That's the kind of kind of process flow that I think you could find. Right. I mean, versus, versus a company that's literally selling time or, or is, or is not in the manufacturing space. Right. Or less now, let's say a company that is selling time, right? Like a staffing firm, right? Oh, they're selling. No. So the reality of that is that they have, and, you know, processes in place, right? Mm-hmm. Somehow, somebody has to communicate with them, right? So they get, in that case, they may get an email, they may get, uh, you know, somebody puts their resume in their, in their uh, virtually, and then there's a process internally that we go through evaluating that, that you know, that, and how that gets done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how do we determine where that individual will fit best if, if there's a client that we're calling to come in, you know, that's calling for staffing needs, right? So there is a process in everything that we do. And you can apply all of this in any type of a process. You know, we, we do it at banks. You know, uh, we do it in customer service operations. We've done it in utility operations. You know, we're people that uh, come in and repair the, you know, the, the, the cables and the lines when there's uh, issues or they come in and install service at your house. You know, there's a process for all of that. And, you know, and it has a movement and it touches different, uh, different hands and there's different things that get done. So, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't happen magically. So we can take a look at anything. Just happened that the bulk of our work tends to be, you know, in that, you know, manufacturing world, right? Uh, how often do you recommend some a company uh, do conduct a Kaizen? Once a year or once a quarter? It depends on their efforts. I mean, uh, some, some companies, uh, you know, that we work with, we do one or, t- you know, uh, two a month, depending on the size of the organization and what they're attempting to do. If it's a smaller organization, obviously, you know, a Kaizen requires internal resources to participate. So it's a team approach. The consultant serves as the facilitator and, and the person that brings the, the, the variety of tools to the table that you train people uh, to utilize. So in that case, if you're a smaller company, maybe you do one once a month or maybe you do one every quarter, right? Mm-hmm. Because of your kind of environment. But you know, but the key thing in all of this is really never to stop improving. Right. Because right? a, a lot of times what happens is we do something where well, we did something, nothing else happens. And you know, and 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 those are the, you know, the, the statistically, uh, it is known that um, 90% of plants in the US uh, you know, have really try some portion of operational excellence, which would mean lean, Six Sigma, ways to improve their operation. But only 3% of them have been successful. Mm-hmm. 
That's a huge disparity, right? It is. Uh, and the reason for that is that, you know, you can't think of a Kaizen event or doing something and then you're done. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's the whole mentality of continuous improvement is really changing and, you know, changing your culture, changing your process. You know, things, you may do something today uh, this way, but, you know, something might change. New materials, new equipment, you need to look at it again. Or new employees come in, mm -hmm. right? So in all of that, you really need to look at a mindset of how do I improve my operation on an ongoing basis? Do you see a trend uh, that you can predict of manufacturing offshore coming back onshore? Or is it, are we going to continue to see jobs go overseas? Or, you know, what, what, what do you forecast? I think, I think that, you know, it's going to take a while, but I think, you know, the, the move is on for companies to begin to look at moving to locations either in the U.S. or closer to the U.S. You know, like Mexico, it's becoming uh, a spot where companies that are either in, you know, in, in China and some other places are looking to move to both for its proximity to the U.S., right? Um, so that's a plus. And it, uh, and, uh, in addition to that, that, you know, there's good relations between the U.S. and Mexico, generally speaking, right? So the border transactions are much easier than, you know, when it comes from China, as an example. So, you know, you eliminate, as you know, if you bring in something from China, it could be six weeks transit time, mm -hmm. right? So that's a, that's a lot of time that before you get something. Uh, so I think people are looking at physical suppliers within the U.S. And companies that are in China, I think, are looking for ways to really look at bringing those operations uh, to, to the U.S. or other countries that are more geographically located closer to the U.S. So I see that movement. It's not going to take, um, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. I think that uh, it will vary by industry sector. Uh, I think pharmaceutical, uh, I think it's going to come back. Mm -hmm. I think uh, uh, Puerto Rico is going to benefit a lot from, you know, the pharmaceutical sector. Because mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, used to be uh, really uh, the, the, the all pharmaceuticals used to be in Puerto Rico. Uh, so now I think that, uh, you know, uh, that's going to probably come back, uh, much more rapidly than, than, than we think. Okay. All right, Tony. Well, we're getting, we're getting close to the end. I, I do want people to get to know you a little bit. Tell us about how you stay in such great shape. <laughs> well, you know, I exercise, right? I exercise and I make sure I eat well. Right. Uh, and uh, exercising, you know, I, uh, I used to be a member of the uh, New York Sports Club. And so I, I used to, uh, you know, get up at 510. I'd be at the gym 530 in the morning. I do my hour plus of workout and all of that. I'd be at the office by eight o'clock in the morning. You know, so that that disappeared. Actually, the New York the sports club, the, the one that I belong to has closed down. The company is under Chapter 11. Right right now. Uh, but I get up every morning at home. I don't get up at 510, but I'm up at, you know, six and I do five days a week. I do, I have a whole routine of different things that I do uh, anywhere between 45 to 60 minutes 
uh, I do that five days a week and, you know, and, and uh, you have to do that. Yeah. Uh, keep sanity um, and put it also, you know, uh, and, and obviously it's, you know, good eating habits. Yeah. All right. So, uh, and I'm blessed to have a partner that she's a, a great cook. So we cook together. That's one way to. I see you know, that. I love yeah. that. I mean, no, so. you guys, you guys uh, put out a lot of great content and, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, I admire that. I admire that, you know, you put out that it's, you find, you make life fun. You know, you guys are, you guys enjoy traveling and, and, and bike riding. Anything else that you guys do for fun that, that, uh, that I don't, that I may not see on social media? Oh, no, you know, we, we know we go, we haven't been right bike riding as much, but we know yeah. we've done that together, right? Yeah. Uh, we're really, you know, we're looking forward to, uh, we have a, well, a trip that was supposed to happen uh, last September, and hopefully it will happen in, uh, uh, in J- J- May, and that's, uh, you know, Tahiti, mm-hmm. we're going to go on a, a nice. bike, uh, you know, tour and a cycling trip to to that part of the world that I've been wanting to go for a long time. And if I like it, I may not come back, you know, <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. So but you know, and, and, yeah. and, but you know, and, and basically, you know, uh, um, you know, I, I tend to be, I like to be an ongoing person and obviously the pandemic has really put a damper on that. You know, you can't visit with your friends. And if you do that, you got to make sure they're in a bubble, right? So mm-hmm. that's limited. And you try to, when you do that, it's really outside so, so, you know, but, you know, you, I guess, you know, I look at it this way. I'm blessed that I'm healthy, right? And, I, and, uh, and I'm also uh, blessed that I can still work. And, I'm, you know, I'm back in my office uh, and I'm working and, you know, playing it, making sure that I stay safe. But it's really home, work, home. Work, you know, so that kind of trip, 15 hours a day, back and forth, and that's it. Uh, although, you know, uh, on, the, on the 28th, uh, there's a, a new client, potential new client uh, that call uh, that's located in Connecticut. And so uh, we're going to do a meeting, an in-person meeting, social distancing with mask and all of that, because we got to take a tour of the plant. But, you know, it's... You can't, you're not going to mitigate hundred percent risk, 100%, but you right. got to do the best you can. Right. Absolutely. And, and you guys, you know, uh, I know you're active in the community. I've been to the jazz event that it, yeah. the Rotary, you're, are you still involved with Rotary? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Rotarian. You know, I, uh, I, uh, Rotary, it's the organization that, uh, I've been involved since 1986 mm-hmm. and I, you know, I'd been the president of our club I, you know, I, and the jazz brunch, which you mentioned is, uh, it's one that I do for the club every year. And then this year we had to, uh, you know, postpone it, but we're hopeful that in, you know, 2021, uh, the first Sunday of November, 2021 is when we hope to have it. And we hope that, you know, we can have, you know, 300 people, uh, in this event like we do in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, so, but you know, you you don't know until until we get closer to September and see what the uh, state r- r- guidelines are. And but yeah, I, I stay very involved with Rotary, and I stay very involved, you know, uh, with uh, you know uh, other organizations that I support locally, uh, 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 and you know, from the Y uh, to the Village. Yeah. Those are all in you know here in uh, 
in the greater Hartford area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, uh, I, you know, the, it, it's, it's in my nature to really, you know, look out for the less fortunate, right? Yeah. So I'm very fortunate with what I have. And if whenever I can help uh, and give, I do that. Yeah. Well, that's why you're my hero. So excellent. Now uh, we're wrapping up. Just um, how can, how can people find you? How, what's the best way for a client or someone interested in your services to reach you or find you? Well, uh, a number of ways you can go to Google and Google Daniel Penn Associates. They'll come up, you know, or you can go to our website, which is www.danielpenn.com. And that's P-E-N-N.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, or you can call me, uh, 860-232-8577, or you can send me an email at Tony R, uh, at, uh, danielpenn.com. So, uh, you know, you can take a look at all of that and you'll find us and Twitter, you know, our handle is DPA. I mean, DP, DP, I'm sorry, DPA LLC. Uh, that's right. our, our handle and you can find us and on Twitter and, and you can, you know, also if you like to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn and, uh, you know, uh, connect with me. I, and if anybody has any questions, right. Uh, cause you know, we're always, uh, as you know, we're, uh, if you're looking to start a business as you mentioned early in the conversation and sometimes is, is a hesitation to take a plunge and, you know, and sometimes when, you know, just like happened to you, Ramon, you know, you got laid off and then you, you took the plunge, right? Mm-hmm. If you had not taken that plunge, you would not be here, you know, with this podcast. So, exactly. you know, you were a successful entrepreneur. Uh, so sometimes it's, it's taking that plunge and it's never easy because uh, it's not easy. But, you know, if you have an idea, if you have a passion of something that you can do, go for it. Excellent, man. A great, great wisdom and a great way to end the show. Thank you, Tony, for, for making the time to be on here. And, and I'd love to have you back on. And I uh, appreciate you joining us today. Well, I appreciate you for having me. And uh, Merry Christmas. All right. You too, man. Thank Bye-bye. you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Mission Control. Until next time, this is Ramon Peralta with Peralta Design and We Launch Brands. Thank you for taking this journey with us. To learn more about Peralta Design and our work, go to www.peraltadesign.com and subscribe to keep up with the crew.